Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. Well, it's Easter tomorrow, but we're celebrating today, Saturday night, obviously. And, uh, you know, Easter is... One of the, you know, the only things, you know, when it comes to Easter, that pretty much all Christians in the world, 45,000 plus denominations and counting, it's getting more and more every day, every week, every month. But if there's one thing pretty much all of us can agree on, and it pretty much is only one thing, it's that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave to conquer death. On that, across 45,000 plus denominations, plus the hundreds of thousands of churches that are part of no denomination like this one, we can agree with our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa and South America and all around the world, we can agree that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave to conquer death. Now, if you've ever stopped to think more than that, all right, if you are like me and you are burdened with a mind that wants to know how does it work, why does it work this way, The moment you begin to question anything more than just the basic facts, he died, he rose again, somehow that saves us from sin and death. If you ask any more questions than that, how did his death save us and what does it save us from? We are now back in a place where 45,000 plus denominations do not agree. And for 2,000 years, Christians have disagreed about how Jesus' death and resurrection works. What are we saved from Why did he need to die? Now, we don't have time today in this sermon. And by the way, all across, you know, the world uh, this weekend, tomorrow, not many tonight probably, but tomorrow, preachers will be preaching messages about the cross. And most of them will be preaching, even if the pastor doesn't realize it or the church doesn't realize it, they will be preaching one of these views that the church has had for 2,000 years about how the cross of Jesus works. And we don't have time to cover all of them today, but I do want to cover two. And I I hope by the end of this that not only are you going to understand Jesus' death and resurrection a little more, I hope that you're going to see afresh and in new ways some really beautiful things about God. So I just want to show you first two of the main theories, okay? These are called atonement theories. You can throw those words out, okay? This is going to be an intensely practical message that you can understand about Jesus, but I have to just put some labels out there for you. So in history, for the last 2,000 years, two of the biggest theories, and there's a bunch of other ones, but two of the biggest ones are Christus Victor theory and penal substitution theory. And some of you are going, oh brother, we just came out of this amazing music and we felt something. And now we're talking about theories. I'm not feeling anything. You're going to feel something. I just have to get there. So Christus Victor, by the way, was the most popular theory of how the cross works for about the first 1,000 or 1,200 years of the church. By far, it was the most popular one in the first, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Over the last 500 years since the Reformation, for various reasons, which we will not get into here tonight, penal substitution has become probably the most uh, popular theory about how the cross works in our sorts of circles, evangelical circles, okay? Now, let me explain to you what each of these is, okay? 
So Christus Victor theory. How does the cross work? What happened when Jesus died? Christus Victor's theory says, and again, the first thousand years of church history, this is what the vast majority of Christians believed, is that Jesus let the powers of evil kill him. So there's a who and a who. Okay, so who killed Jesus? In Christus Victor theory, it was the powers of evil that killed him. It was Satan working through evil human beings. Jesus let the powers of evil kill him so that he could save us from their power, the powers of sin and death and the devil. The who and the who. Who was Jesus saving, or who, was, who killed Jesus? The evil powers, Satan, you know, and his henchmen. And who was Jesus saving us from? The evil powers of sin and death and the devil. Now, again, many of you might not know the term Christus Victor theory, but how many of you have ever watched or read the Chronicles of Narnia? Just put your hands up. It's not a trick question, okay? So if you aren't, if you have not watched the movie or read the book, maybe you're not a Christian. Just kidding, okay? But it's C.S. Lewis. It's like second to the Bible, right, for a lot of Christians. But anyway, so Chronicles of Narnia, in the fate, you know, the most famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the most famous scene, all right, where Aslan, who, who I, don't, I always wonder, is it Aslan or is it Aslan? I'm going to go with Aslan for today, okay? But uh, Aslan, who represents Jesus, is killed by the white witch. Now, if you watched the movie or if you read the book and you enjoyed that scene, if it was powerful, it's the Easter scene enacted in this fantasy world. If you liked that scene, then you like Christus Victor theory because C.S. Lewis in that scene is popularizing in a fictional, beautiful way the Christus Victor theory of atonement that it was the powers of Satan. In, in Narnia, it's the white witch who represents Satan, who kills Aslan, who represents Jesus. It's the bad guys who kill Jesus, but then through him dying, he overcomes their power. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful story. Now, there's lots of scriptures that support Christus Victor theory. By the way, there's lots of verses that are used to support all the theories. Isn't that great? That's why Christians get to disagree, okay? But there's lots of theories. I'll just show you one verse for Christus Victor, okay? Who killed Jesus? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this. Who killed Jesus? He says this. We declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age. Now, rulers of this age there is referring to a combination of the evil powers of this world. Paul is referring to Satan and sort of the spiritual force of darkness and how they work through the evil human authorities, the Roman soldiers and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders, all together with the evil powers of this world, the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So according to this passage, Paul is saying, who killed Jesus? According to this passage, Paul is saying it was the rulers of this age. That's Christus Victor, okay? It was these evil spiritual forces working through evil human leaders to kill Jesus. And he was dying at their hands in order to save us from their power. Now, many of you might be, so far you might be going, oh, okay, this just makes sense. There is only Christus Victor theory. No, there's a bunch of other ones. And they also make sense, some of them, more than others, when you look at other passages of scripture. So I'm just going to show you one more here, because this one has become much more popular in you know, Christian churches and evangelicalism in modern times since the Reformation. 
Penal substitution theory. Now, this theory is very different than Christus Victor. And no doubt, all of us have been, exp- have been exposed without these titles to both of these theories. So penal substitution theory says Jesus wasn't actually killed by Satan. He wasn't actually killed by the bad guys. Jesus was actually killed by God. God was working through people. Because Jesus was saving us, not from Satan's wrath, not from, you know, ultimately from death and sin, but actually what Jesus is saving us from is God's wrath. See, in penal substitution, the problem is not Satan, sin, and death as much. I mean, those are problems in penal substitution. But in penal substitution, the biggest problem is that God is so holy that he must wrath, he must pour out his wrath on every sinful person. All right? Every sinful person deserves to be horribly punished and killed by God. And so this is where the word substitution comes in. So Jesus, when he got up on a cross, he wasn't so much taking a bullet from Satan. He was actually taking a beating from God. He was substituted for us. God should be beating us because we're sinners. But instead, God beat Jesus. And so Jesus is our substitution. Now, again, there's a bunch of, and there's verses we could read for this side of the theory too, okay? So, quick caveat again. There are wonderful, intelligent, Jesus-loving people on both of these theories. And then there's a bunch of other Jesus-loving, wonderful, intelligent people on some different theories that I'm not even showing you. Now, some Christians take that and they just throw up their hands. Well, then it just must be some combination of all of them. Sure, that's a possibility too. But here's what I want to do in the rest of this sermon. I am not an unbiased pastor, human being, person. And in the rest of this sermon, I want to explain to you, I'm not going to give you an unbiased lecture on all the different theories. I'm going to tell you and explain to you why I have been personally convinced that Christus Victor is, I think, in my opinion, the most biblical and accurate theory. And I think that as we do this, I think you're going to see some things about God that I think are really very beautiful. Because even though it doesn't matter what theory you hold to in terms of your salvation, like we're going to be all together in eternity someday, and maybe we were all wrong. I think that's going to be true of a lot of things. We were all wrong. Who was right? Who was wrong? We were all wrong. But having said that, how you view the cross is going to deeply impact how you picture God. And your picture of God will subconsciously deeply impact your spiritual, your emotional, your mental health, and how you behave. If your view of God is more harsh, that is going to have an impact on you. If your view of God is much less harsh, that's going to have an impact on you. So let me make for you a case why I think Christus Victor is the best theory for us. And the first place we're going to start, by the way, we're in the middle of a series in Leviticus, so I am going to get into Leviticus. All right? We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 5. We're not going to spend the whole sermon there. It is Easter. I wanted to do this kind of whole thing. We're going to get to Leviticus in the second point. But my first point is this. I want to ask the question. Does God 
need to kill someone in order to forgive you. See, if penal substitution is true, and lots of Christians, by the way, we, many of us mingle all the, we mingle the theories together. In fact, as a preacher, I've been preaching for 20 years now. At various times in my life, I have preached both of these theories, sometimes in the same sermon, flipping back and forth. And we're not all going to hell as a result of it, okay? Thank God it doesn't all depend on me getting it right, because then we're all in trouble. So you will, many of you will have heard a mishmash of this, but one of the things Christians talk about is they talk about how Jesus' death enabled God the Father to forgive us. Now, there's a slight problem with that, and that is the definition of what forgiveness is. Have you ever thought about what forgiveness actually means? So on the one hand, Christians will say, yes, God had to, had to hurt Jesus in order to forgive me so he wouldn't have to hurt me. The problem with that is the definition of forgiveness is actually the opposite. So the definition of forgiveness is this. Here, I just took this from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. So when we, in modern English, use the word forgiveness, this is what we mean. To forgive someone means you give up your claim to resentment, compensation, and or retaliation. That's what we mean. When we, in English, say forgiveness, this is what we mean that you gave up your claim. You had a claim. Someone did something bad to you. Someone took something from you. If you forgive them, you're giving up your claim to any kind of compensation. Another way to say that, or another application of forgiveness, is if you forgive someone, it means you grant them total relief of payment from a debt. So an example I have used before when preaching is the example of a bank. All right, if you owe a bank a lot of money, you have a debt to a bank. If they forgive you of your debt, what that means is you no longer have to pay them back. If the bank forgives you of a debt, it means they don't get their money. They're out the money. That's what forgiveness is. You're out the money. You're out the payment. Now, let's say someone nice. Now, let's say you owe some money on your house still, all right, and you're paying extremely high interest rates. And now some very nice person comes along and says, I'm going to pay off your loan for you. And you go, you hug this person, you kiss them on both cheeks, you throw a party and you're so thankful to them. Has the bank forgiven you of your loan? And the answer is no. You don't go to the bank and thank the bank because the bank got paid. You thank the person who paid your debt but the bank didn't forgive your debt. The bank got paid. They just got paid by someone else. In the same way, if Jesus on the cross was paying God, if God needs to beat and crush and kill someone who sins, and then Jesus allows God the Father to beat and crush and kill him so that God doesn't have to beat and crush and kill you, then God still got paid. We can thank Jesus like crazy. Thank you for paying my debt. But it does not make sense to talk about God the Father as being forgiving in that sense. And actually, that's okay. If we want to go that way, 
If someone wants to go that way, that's actually okay. You can thank Jesus. Thank you for paying my debt to God. But it doesn't make sense to say we serve a loving and merciful. Well, loving you could still have in there maybe, but it wouldn't make sense to say we serve a forgiving, merciful God. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. All right? So that's the definition of forgiveness. Now, if we believe that God is actually a forgiving God, then he actually doesn't need to kill someone else in order to forgive you. He can actually just forgive you. By the way, I could show you many stories in Scripture, Old Testament and New, where God actually just forgives people. Where Jesus just says, he says to the paralytic, I forgive you. And now to prove that you're forgiven, I also heal you. Just forgiven. Nobody needs to die. All right? In that case, Jesus then died for something else. Not to pay God, but to overcome the forces of evil. Which, and there's another verse I just want to throw in here right now, which is what Hebrews 2 Verses 14 to 15 say, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him. Now notice, by his death, what is Hebrews saying? Is Hebrews going to say, by his death he might pay God so God doesn't have to kill you? That's not what he says. He says, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. In other words, Hebrews 2 is saying, that Jesus was conquering Satan, not taking a beating from God, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now someone might be sitting there and you might be saying, but wait a minute, don't our sins deserve death? And the answer is yes. When you owe a debt to the bank, does the bank not deserve for you to pay them back? Yes. When we hurt people and when we hurt God, do we not owe something to God? And the answer is yes. The question is not, do we owe God a debt? The answer is yes. Just like if you owe the bank a debt, you owe them a debt. They deserve to be paid. But if they forgive you, it means they give up their claim to what you owe. So the question is not, do our sins deserve death? Our sins definitely deserve death. And we can look around the world today, and we can see the results of greed and pride and violence and anger. It's death everywhere we look. The question is not, what do our sins deserve? The question is, is God allowed to actually forgive? Is God allowed to actually be merciful, to not give people what they deserve? See, for a lot of Christians... We talk about God's holiness and how it interacts with sin almost like it's a mathematical equation. And no doubt you guys have heard stuff like this before. If you've been around me long enough, a few years ago, you've heard me say things like this. But many Christians will say things like, God's holiness absolutely can't be in the presence of sin. If God's holiness comes in the presence of sin, it's like there's an explosion, there's violence, there's killing, even though I could show you many examples in Scripture where God, particularly in the form of Jesus, was often in the presence of sinful people and didn't lose his mind in a spasm of violence and killing. But having said that, many of us think of God's holiness as a mathematical equation. Holiness must 
kill and hurt anyone who sins. And sometimes as Christians, we look back at the book of Leviticus and we say, see, look at all the blood sacrifices. If you want to get your sins forgiven, something has to die. This is all part of the mathematical equation. Holiness means God has to kill in order to forgive. Except that I wonder hmm, if we could find any exceptions in the book of Leviticus. Because if we could, that would undermine entirely the whole idea of a mathematical equation that holiness requires violence in order to forgive. And in fact, there is an exception right in the middle of the description of the sin offering in Leviticus chapters 4 and 5. Let me show you this. Leviticus chapter 5. I'm not going to read you two entire chapters. Here's what it says. If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, and then he's going to make a list. I I put some dot, dot, dots in there because I couldn't fit this all on one screen, but he makes a list of different examples of sins. So anyone becomes aware that they're guilty, they unwittingly touch anything ceremonial unclean, because that was a big deal in Leviticus, or if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath, like you make a promise, and you didn't keep it, you lied, and then they learn of it and realize their guilt. So it's talking about you've, you've sinned. So you've done something wrong. Here's how you fix it. And he's going to describe the sin offering. As a penalty for the sins. Remember we said before, there's no question that there's a penalty for sin. Just like when you take money from a bank, you owe the money. When you sin, there's a penalty for that. You owe God something. As a penalty for their sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. So, there it is. This is very, we all know Leviticus. you got to make a sacrifice in order to be forgiven when you make a mistake. By the way, the positive side of this, the positive aspect of the sacrificial system, is that it taught the people how hurtful sin is. It showed that sin has consequences. That's a positive side of the sacrificial system. Now, the interesting thing is, okay, lamb or goat. Very important, it's got to be a lamb or a goat. Except if you don't have enough money to afford a lamb or a goat. In that case, you can bring doves or pigeons. Okay, so, by the way, I just love this. That God makes allowances so much for mathematical certainties, but we're not even done yet, but Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. And that's how they kept their pigeons under control. To the Lord as a penalty for their sin. We should probably go back to something like that, right? But one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Okay, so love this. God actually has exceptions in the sacrificial system. I can forgive you without lamb blood. I can do it with pigeon or dove blood if you don't have enough money for a lamb. Okay, that's neat. That's really, actually, I find fascinating. You find this throughout the book of Leviticus. Always God makes room for poor people. But we're not done yet because what about people who can't even afford a dove or a pigeon? And this is where we get to one of my new favorite verses in the Bible. I have lots of favorite verses now in Leviticus. If, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons. They are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour for a sin offering. Wait a minute. 
flower doesn't bleed. Flower doesn't bleed. Last I checked, you can't kill flower. You can't get blood out of flower. But wait a minute. I thought it was a mathematical equation. You sin, God needs something to die in order to forgive you. You know what I love about this? God's already slipping exceptions into the Old Testament laws. Psst! I actually am a forgiving and loving God. I don't actually need blood in order to forgive you. And he goes on to say about this grain offering, in this way the priest will make atonement for them for any of these sins they have committed and they will be forgiven without blood. By the way, it's exceptions like this and lots of other things and the moving of the Holy Spirit that leads to later Israelite writers and prophets to have a revelation that the, that the writer of Leviticus did not yet have. When you get into the prophets later in the Old Testament, you know what they all start to realize? Wait a minute. God never needed sacrifice in the first spot, in the first place. Let's look at this, Psalm 40. Psalm 40, David says this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. What? The writer of Leviticus couldn't have written that. That wouldn't have made sense. But the Holy Spirit has these, has this people on a journey that's leading up to Jesus. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. God never desired. By the way, this is radical in the ancient world. In the ancient world, all people thought the gods want blood. The gods love blood. They eat when you burn an animal, when you kill an animal, the smoke went up. And ancient people saw the gods as needing that for food. They loved the smell. They loved the death. They loved the blood. David comes along and says, whoa, wow, revelation. God actually doesn't like sacrifice offering. But my ears you have opened. That's the Spirit. The Spirit's speaking to him. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. What? What does God instead desire? Then I said, here I am, I've come. He's written about me in a scroll. I desire to do your will, my God, your laws within my heart. Ancient peoples, again, here we are thousands of years later. This doesn't, seem, this doesn't seem revolutionary to us anymore. Ancient peoples, this is revolutionary. Ancient peoples did not think that good behavior made the gods happy. Ancient peoples thought cultic rituals and blood and sacrifice made the gods happy. And here, the Holy Spirit speaks to David and says, no, no, no. What I actually love is people who do right and love people. And I could show you verse after verse after verse. Let me just show you one more. Hosea 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea says, this is what God actually wants. This is what God loves. I am completely lost. Oh, objection. I read in here, Objection. So someone's sitting there and you're going, again, you're back to this. I know what some of you are thinking. Are you saying there's no consequences for sin? That's not at all what I'm saying. Let's go to this famous verse. Romans 6.23. There are definitely consequences for sin. Paul says this, For the wages of sin is death. 
The wages of sin is death. There are definitely consequences for sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the problem with the way we read this. There is, well, let me just put it up here. What does this mean that the wages of sin is death? Does it mean that sin is a poison that kills? Or does it mean God has to kill you if you sin? Have you ever thought about that? Is sin a poison? The wages of sin is death. There's no question about that. No, you know, as a Christian, as a person who believes the Bible is God's word, I don't question, is the wages of sin death? But what we should question is, how are the wages of sin death? Is it that sin is a poison that kills, or is it that God has to kill you if you sin? I think you know where I'm leaning by now. But let me share with you an example, a not true example, okay? But let's imagine that in my garage, I have a shelf, and on that shelf are many toxic, poisonous chemicals to be used for things like cleaning out, oh, I've got a bunch of girls in our house, long hair out of, you know, like Drano, and it just gets plugged. And so you have to have the strongest chemicals to eat that stuff away. It's really astonishing. But so imagine I have on a shelf, I have very toxic chemicals like that, maybe bleach, maybe I don't know what else. So, but you have these up there. So I bring my kids. We have four kids. And I, let's say I bring them into the garage and I point to the shelf with the poisonous chemicals up there and I say to them, thus saith dad, you shall not, commandment number one, you shall not play with these chemicals or ingest these chemicals. Oh, 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 my nine-year-old boss. What does it mean to ingest? Okay, you shall not drink these chemicals or touch these chemicals. Okay. Now imagine I go inside and one of my children, I can't imagine which one would do this, but let's imagine they are rebellious. And in their rebellion, they go out into the garage and they say, I don't believe dad. He's a killjoy. And they take the Drano and they take a swig. Now I come out a few minutes later and I find one of my kids, this rebellious, disobedient child, curled up on the garage floor in immense pain, very sick. Now, as a dad, I want, I want you to, to think with me here a bit. Am I enraged and am I wrathful at this child? Am I, you stupid child, how you disobeyed me, and now I have to kill you. By the way, we laugh, except that's actually how some of us think God works. I wouldn't be angry at my kid. I would be horrified and sad. Now let me ask you, as this child, if this child doesn't get help immediately, they will die. Are they going to die because I'm killing them, or are they going to die because the poison is killing them? And we all know the answer. They're going to die if they don't get help because the poison is killing them. I want you to notice again here in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. In the second half of the sentence, it says, but the gift of God. I want you to notice it does not say the put. The object of the second half of this sentence is this gift of God. 
The object in the first half of the sentence is the wages of sin. Notice that he's not saying, for the punishment of God is death, and then the gift of God is eternal life. No, God enters into the second half of the equation. He will give you life, those who trust in Jesus. But when it comes to the death part, you don't even need God to put you to death. Sin is enough of a poison on its own. And again, I ask you just to look around the world. And look at your own life and look at your own relationships. What are the effects of selfishness and greed and pride and lust and anger and violence? The result is death. But now imagine that I look around in the garage and there's a tube. Now, please don't send me medical advice after this. I wouldn't actually do this. Okay? But let's imagine that there is a way that I can just stuff this tube into my child's throat and I can suck out the poison. But if I suck out the poison, and the fumes of it and the getting the poison out is someone that's going to get into me, but sucking out the poison will actually kill me. But you know, the thing is, those of you who have kids, you know this. It's just the way we're wired if you're a parent. When you have a kid, you just do it because you love them. I'd rather suck the poison out of them and die than have my kid die. By the way, some deep, deep parallels there with God. So imagine I choose now and I take this poison on myself and I take it into me to save them. Have I saved my children from my own wrath? No. They're broken. I love them. What have I saved them from? I've saved them from poison. When Jesus got up on the cross, by the way, Jesus is God. It's not like there's two personalities to God. When Jesus got on the cross, he wasn't getting up there and saying, God beat me as angrily as you possibly can so that you don't have to beat someone else. No. When Jesus climbed up on that cross, he was absorbing the full effects of the poison of sin and death. And then he took those things down into the grave. And when he rose three days later, he had conquered death and sin. And someday we're going to be able to live without those things. And in the meantime, we're in this in-between zone where we still experience some of the effects of sin and death and the devil. But that's what Jesus did on the cross. Because he loves you. And God's not horrifically angry at you. And so I want to finish with this verse. And then we're going to take communion together to remember what God is really like. Back to Hebrews 2.14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.